I'd like to read with you from 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 35 through to 49. A few weeks ago, it was Easter Sunday, and I always think it's good for us to contemplate at length for a number of weeks afterwards on the glory of the resurrection, the glory of what's to come in Jesus Christ. And so we turn this morning to 1 Corinthians 15, and we'll read from verses 35 to 49. 1 Corinthians 15 is a long, long defense of the doctrine of the resurrection. We read in verse 35, the word of God. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And when you sow is not the body, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of dust. Of heaven. This morning I may proclaim to you the word of God as we find that in 1 Corinthians 15, the verses 42 through 45. It would be good for us to read those words again. But 1 Corinthians 15, verse 42, the word of God. So is it with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. This is the word of God. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, how often have you experienced death in your family, among your friends, your dear ones? However often it may be, it's always too often. In my profession, for more than 40 years, I've seen it too often especially when it's sudden or when they're young 
much too often. My family, my larger family, I've seen it too often. It's inevitable. The statistics on death are absolute. One out of one dies. And the older we get, the more we realize one day our day will come. And if we learn lessons from the church, we know it's not just the old people who should think that. We all should realize one day our day will come. And that's why Easter is so absolutely wonderful, because its message is the message that Jesus preached at the grave of Lazarus, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never, ever die. God's Word is proclaimed to you under this theme. The resurrection of Christ is to us a sure pledge of our blessed resurrection. We'll pay attention to the reality of our resurrection and to the reason for our resurrection. The reality and the reason for our resurrection. (coughs) Brothers and sisters, in verse 12 of chapter 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that in Corinth there were some people who actually denied that there was a resurrection of the dead. Persons who could not believe that dead people would actually be raised out of their grave. It's not surprising, is it? When you stand by the grave where someone is buried, it's pretty hard to imagine that they're actually going to come out of there. All that dirt and there are rocks and what's down there, just, just some bones it seems to you. But for the Greeks, it was not just difficult to believe that, it was also less than desirable. For Corinth was very much a Greek town. Corinth was very subject to the various ideas that were predominant in the Greek world. And for the Greeks, the human body was something that was very, very inferior, something of little value, of hardly any significance. Therefore, what you did with the body, even if you go to the prostitutes, it doesn't matter, it's just the body. And what later happens to the body doesn't matter. It's just the body. None of that mattered to the Greeks. All that mattered was the purity and the continued existence of the soul. The soul, the Greeks said, that's something, something of lasting and permanent value. For many years already, the Greek philosophers such as Plato and had taught that the soul is immortal in and of itself, but that 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 inferior, despicable body rots and decays in the grave until it is no more, and it's just as well that it does. To the Greeks, the soul throughout this life is the prisoner of the body. To them, the problem with this life is precisely this. The soul cannot free itself from the many temptations and limitations of the body. And so to them, the beauty of death is this, that finally the soul, which has been a prisoner for all those years, is finally let go and free. At death, the soul flees from the body, they said, and it finds freedom just as a bird flies from its cage. Now, you see, if that's the way you look at things, then the idea of the resurrection of the body is pretty absurd. Then the resurrection of the body is bad news, not good news. If the body is going to be resurrected, they thought, then the soul is going to become prisoner of the body again. The bird goes back into the cage. Those free and easy times for the soul are done. And therefore, Greek people in Paul's day had a hard time believing the resurrection. How could that be? 
they wondered. And why would we want this, they wondered. You see that, for example, in Acts 17. There Paul is in Athens, the city where Socrates and Plato had walked the streets. The city that had been the center of Greek philosophy for many years, there Paul preaches. And Luke tells us in Acts 17, verse 21, that all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's what philosophers do. They entertain the latest ideas, wild and wonderful Luke says they're the kind of people who would entertain every possible idea and thought. Their minds were open to a great many concepts and theories, free thinkers, open-minded people, except when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. When Paul concludes his sermon with a few words about the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, they are dumbfounded. Luke says, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, Some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again about that subject. To them, this was absurd, utterly ridiculous. Well, Corinth is not very far from Athens. And so in Corinth, too, they struggle with these same ideas. Even those who had been converted to Christ had quite some difficulty with this doctrine. So much difficulty that some of them actually denied it. And so 1 Corinthians 15 is, you could say, one lengthy exposition of the message of Easter and the doctrine of the resurrection. From the beginning to the end of this beautiful chapter, Paul comes to the defense of this doctrine. And his point of departure is the fact that Christ definitely, physically rose from the grave. And he begins to make that point by referring to the many witnesses of that fact. He says, if the head of the body rose, is it not sure the rest of the members of the body will do the same? If you see a head coming up the stairs, do you have any doubt that the arms and the rest of the body is going to follow? No, of course. Well, Jesus Christ is the head. But Paul also says in the early verses of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If you doubt this, there are people you can go talk to. They're still walking around the face of the earth, and they have seen Jesus who rose from the dead. They saw the head come up. They saw Jesus. There are 500 witnesses, most of whom are still living. They've seen him. Do you doubt? There are witnesses. It's a court case. There are witnesses. He shows, too, the disastrous consequences of denying this doctrine. He says, if Christ did not rise from the grave, he did not conquer death. And then all our preaching is for nothing. Then faith is futile. Then you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who have died before you, have perished forever. If only for this life we have hoped in Christ, he says, we are pitied more than all men. It's true, if Easter and the resurrection are nothing but a hoax, then the very foundation of the building that is Christianity is torn away. Then the death of Christ is of no purpose. The death of Christ, the resurrection, is of no consequence. There will be no glorious inheritance for the people of God that Peter goes on about. With many other arguments, Paul comes to the defense of this doctrine. Until finally, in the area around our text, he speaks about the manner, the mechanics of how the dead are raised. 
For undoubtedly, those Greeks, those Corinthians, also had their questions about this. They ask, as Paul says in verse 35, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Did you ever wonder about that when you're at the grave? How are they raised? With what kind of body will they, will we come out of this grave? It's one thing to accept it. It's another thing to try to visualize. How are the dead raised? How is this possible? But Paul says anyone who is so skeptical about this is a fool, shallow person, simpleton. For look, Paul says in verses 36 to 38, those verses that are in fact the background of our text, Paul says, such a person has obviously never observed how it goes every year with creation. Paul says, what happens in the springtime? The farmers plant seeds, a kernel. It's planted into the ground. And after a while, that seed, as it were, in non-agricultural language, it, it dies. It dies off. And then God gives to that seed, as it were, a body. A plant springs forth out of the ground. Different seeds bring forth different plants, says Paul. God creates many varieties of bodies, human beings, Plants, sun, moon, stars, they all get different bodies, different external forms of existence. <coughs> now Paul says, what do you think? If God can do that every year with the seeds planted in the ground, why can he not do this with a human body? If you know that so it goes with something as common as seeds, we just take it for granted. It's going to happen, right? But think about it goes into the grave one way, goes into the ground one way, comes out the other way, goes into the grave one way, comes out the other way. Why can God not do what we take for granted every year, the same with human bodies? This is the God who just spoke the word and this world came into existence. He will speak the word again and his world will come into a new glorious existence. This is God. Worship God. If the one is possible, why is the other not? Paul makes a good point. Who determines whether this little seed brings forth a huge Douglas fir? Have you ever looked at those things? They come from a little seed or just a little bean plant. Who determines what? God, God alone. It's called the doctrine of providence. And then the Apostle Paul bursts forth with some mighty verses about which that which God does when he raises from people from the dead. He says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. He says, just as mysterious things happen every spring, every fall, so mysterious and miraculous things take place in the depths of the universe. No wonder we look forward to a glorious harvest. For the body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. That is, that body that is lowered into the grave, it is subject to all kinds of illnesses and diseases. It's perishable. Many kinds of germs and bacteria manage to make their homes in the body. They all work to bring about its destruction, cancer, rheumatism, multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, some diseases we don't even know what they are, are able to tear away at the perishable body of ours. Continually that body struggles with all kinds of assaults. But what is raised is imperishable. 
That is, imagine this. What comes out of the grave is immune to all those illnesses and diseases. The struggle is over. The victory has been won. The resurrected body will not perish. It will be the end of death. It will be the end of the grave. It will be the end of all funerals. You'll never have to mourn again. It will continue to exist. It will enjoy health forever. Moreover, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. That is, when we die, when our body has to be laid at the grave, it goes through a dishonorable process. The truth is, we try to bestow as much honor as possible. They dress us in fine clothes, a nice, attractive casket. There are flowers and there are limousines. You almost think it's a wedding. But it's not. It's a funeral. This is the paradox of every funeral. For what can be more dishonorable than to be lowered into the grave? Dust to dust, ashes to ashes. What is more dishonorable than being removed from the face of the earth and lowered into its depths? There's a wonderful book by Dr. Albert Muller on leadership. At the end of the book, he knows he's talking to pastors and to preachers and to professors and academics. At the end of the book, he says, I want you to know this, brothers. Don't think too highly of yourself. He's saying this to all the academics. I, and I've used the same, the, 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 the same little story when I had to speak to our, all the colleagues from our churches from, West, from Eastern Canada. Don't think you're too, high, too highly of yourself because you know what? You know what they're going to do at the end of your life? If you think so highly of yourself, they're going to do it regardless. You know what they're going to do with you? They're going to dig a hole and they're going to put you in the ground and they're going to put dirt on it and that's you. And then they're going to go back to the church and eat their raisin buns. Don't think so highly of yourself. But says Paul jubilantly, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. That is, at the resurrection, the opposite is true. There is only glory and honor for us through Christ and His work. There, when the dead are raised, the trumpet sounds, the victory is, sound, is, is won. Then honor, majesty, and glory are ours into all eternity. For what can be more glorious than this? To be made, to be transformed, so that we are like the glorious body of Christ. We are made like Christ, and we are made like His glorious body. What is that glorious body? It's the glorious body of His resurrection of the Easter message. After Easter, you see Jesus walking around. They saw Jesus. What did He look like? That's what we'll be like. Jesus is the first fruits of the great harvest. If there's going to be a first fruit, if there is a first fruit, there will be a harvest. And thirdly, Paul says, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. Again, Paul speaks about the frailty of that which is lowered in the grave. This body that we now have is subject to all kinds of weaknesses. After a few hours of work, it soon becomes tired in need of rest. After too vigorous activity, it becomes exhausted and cannot go on. Limbs break, organs malfunction, certain parts become incapacitated. We seem to break down as we go through life. And whatever we do, we are aware of the frailty of our bodies. God will make us aware of the frailty of our bodies, the limitations thereof. 
There are people who know of handicaps and all kinds of physical problems and difficulties. There are those who spend their lives in a wheelchair. But this is the glory of the resurrection. What is sown in weakness is raised in power. There, on the new heaven and the new earth, we will sing to the glory of God and never tire. There we will be continually active in the service of God and never lack the strength. There will be no limitations, frailty unheard of, sown in weakness, raised in power. Don't we just have a great treasure house of comfort here? What a comfort this is for those among us who have to wrestle always with sickness and disease. I don't have to enumerate them. If you're an active member of your church, you know them. You know they're all around you. People who used to come together as a family come with an empty spot in the pew. Sometimes those in the middle of life, just when everything looks so good and so fine, are struck by a crippling, crumbling disease. In most cases, elderly people who have always been active, able to do a multitude of things, are barely able to do a few, but a few. But this is the comfort, this is the consolation of Easter. What we cannot do here now, we will do later. Resurrection means a new body, a better one. Whatever you lack now will be there. I believe not only uh, the resurrection of, the, of the, 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 the immortality of the soul, I believe the resurrection of the body. Resurrection means a new earth with a new harvest along the lines of every harvest, but so much better. What we said after the first coming of Christ will be said again after the second coming. You know what they said after the first coming of Christ? Early chapters of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke. The dead are raised. Jesus is here. The dead are raised. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. The deaf hear. The sick are healed. We will say it again when we get to the other side. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. What a mystery. This perishable, dishonored, and weak body will be exchanged for one that is imperishable, glorious, and powerful. And that's not even all. In a fourth sentence, Paul says, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. This is a puzzling sentence. One of the difficulties, no doubt, is the fact that here the expression is a spiritual body. What is a spiritual body that looks like a, a body that's not a body because it's a spirit? It leads many to think that the resurrection body will be non-physical, spiritual, and this leaves us wondering, what on earth is a spiritual body? Well, within this letter of Paul, there's a key to understanding what he meant. You see, back in 1 Corinthians 2, 14 and 15, Paul uses the same language. In verse 14 of chapter 2, he speaks about the one man, the natural man, the physical man. Paul calls him there, the man without the spirit. The man without the spirit, the natural man thinks one way. He only thinks of himself. He only thinks about his own little world. But, and the Greek is the same in chapter 15. He's talking about the natural man, the man without the spirit. And, it, <clears throat> and it's not wrong to call him the man without the spirit because that's what the natural man is. Paul says the man without the spirit does not accept the things that are come from the spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. 
They cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Paul is speaking there between the, about the demarcation line between believers and unbelievers, men and women without the Spirit, and men and women with the Spirit. Men and women without the Spirit have one outlook on this world, one outlook on, the, on their lives, but men and women with the Spirit, and boys and girls with the Spirit, have a completely different outlook on their life. The one must be pessimistic, or the other will be optimistic. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things. He understands the things of God. He has the mind of Christ. Well then, the same contrast is present in chapter 15. It is sown a natural body. That means what goes into the grave is something that is part of this present sin-cursed existence. Man in his present body is natural, belonging to this present age, and therefore easily tempted to do wrong. He's flesh. To be sure, the person who is in Christ is now unable to resist temptation, to say no to the devil, and to live a new obedient life. But our obedience in this present life remains imperfect. We fall short of the ideal. We must daily confess our sins. That the nature, that's the nature of our existence. Indeed, the greatest handicaps we all have are not physical. The truth is, we're all handicapped. We're all spiritually handicapped. We are part and parcel of this existence. It is one in which sin constantly is challenging us. It is one in which we know what is right and we may want to do what is right, but we so often have difficulty doing it because of our spiritual handicaps. We can be spiritual for a moment, but we are not sufficiently dominated by the Spirit that we have finally arrived at the goal. That's what meant when it says... It is sown a natural body. But see, it is raised a spiritual body. What does that mean? Well, the man without the Spirit, from one man with the Spirit, from 1 Corinthians 2, who is he? The man who is dominated by the Spirit, the man who lives different life, the person who, who sees things better because he's driven by the Spirit. What is the man? What is the man with the spiritual body after the resurrection? He's very similar. It means it has raised a spiritual body. It means our future existence will be an existence completely and totally ruled by the Holy Spirit so that we shall finally and forever be done with sin. There we will will what is right and we will actually do it every time again. It is raised a spiritual body. Finally, we're going to be able to live in the presence of a holy God. Finally, we might fit in into this new heaven and this new earth because we'll be new people who can actually do the things we want to do. The rule of Romans 8 is broken. The law weakened by the flesh. The flesh is better now. can live a better life. No, we won't do it perfectly here, but adequately. There's a day coming, we'll all be spiritual men and women. It's raised a spiritual body. There's a world coming where we'll be 100% dominated by the Spirit of God. The idea is not that we will all be angels or spirits, non-material beings. We're made like unto the body of Christ. He ate, he drank. 
The Apostle Paul preaches the resurrection of the body. His whole point is that in this life hereafter, we will enjoy a physical existence. The Bible often says we will be like our Lord Jesus. We will resemble Him after Easter. Risen Christ was not just a spirit. He could be seen with the eye. The disciples touched him. Mary Magdalene held on to him. Christ ate and drank. He walked and talked. But see, when Paul says that it raised a spiritual body, he means we will be like Christ also in this way. We will have a body that is dominated by the Spirit of God, just as dominated as his was. Getting ready for the next life is not just a matter of changing physically. There is much more. The effects of sin run deep. The restoration has to go deep, deep into our very creation. But the resurrection is about the new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. It's about making the divine human Christ able to live in us always. We speak here, no doubt, about tremendous mysteries. When it comes to explaining the nature of man, the nature of you and me right now, we are confronted with mystery. When it comes to the matter of death, with the matter of passing out of this life, we're confronted with mystery. We're bombarded by a host of questions until the time comes when we go through this ourselves. We will have to be content with living with mystery. But we can say with Scripture, at death, even though I'm lowered into the grave, even though I'm buried under the earth, yet I'm immediately with my Lord. Yet to die is to be with Christ. And that mystery is followed by another mystery. For as long as we're in this life, we can hardly even imagine what that life will be like. We can hardly even visualize a part of the glory that is to be revealed. But this is the comfort of Easter. This is the beauty of the resurrection. We will not be wandering spirits, invisible entities. We will not just be eternal space creatures floating around in space for all eternity. That which is beautiful about life now will return to us. I believe a new earth, not this earth destroyed, this earth renewed by the power of Christ, a resurrection of the body. Why a body? Because you're going to have to walk on this earth. You're going to have to move on this earth to do that. You need a body. We will see, we will touch, we will talk, we will walk. In some way, we'll eat and drink. But that's not even half of it. Best of all, we'll be able to serve God entirely. He will recreate us in such a way that in all eternity, we'll be able to enjoy Him and to live in His presence forever. But let's see also the reason for that resurrection. For our text has two more powerful sentences. If there is a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. Why, you ask, it's all in Christ. Because Paul goes on and says, Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. What's the sense here? What's the point? The point is, everything changes at the resurrection. The verse makes much use of the language of Genesis 2, a splendid reality that happened back there. God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then what happened? Scripture says, man became a living being. 
Well, says Paul, that was the breath, and the breath is similar to the Spirit of God. It's the same Hebrew word, actually, and the same Greek word, too, when they use the Greek words. And Paul says, something even more wonderful happens when the Spirit of God enters the tomb on the morning of the third day and raises Jesus. What happened? The man became a living being. Jesus became something better. He became a life-giving spirit. It speaks of the beginning of a new era, the beginning of a new world, a new glorious period in the history of the world. The whole history of the world can be seen in the light of two figures. There's Adam. Adam represents the natural man, the natural body, the race of humanity which ends in death. Adam's whole existence, the existence of all those after him, has been an existence dominated by sin, by weakness, by frailty, by the mere attempt to live to the praise of God. Sin, death, these are characteristic words in this life. Brokenness, death so often seems to get the victory. But the resurrection brings a second figure on the face of the earth. The first Adam, the last Adam, the greatest Adam, the resurrected Christ. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. What does it mean but this? If the first man, Adam, represents the natural man and the natural body, the last Adam represents the spiritual man and the spiritual body. He introduces a new race onto the face of the earth, of the new earth. <coughs> he represents the face, the race of humanity, which will begin with the resurrection of the dead. The first Adam stands for mankind from creation up to death. The last Adam stands for mankind from resurrection into eternity. The last Adam represents a glorious new race, no longer subject to sin and death. He's victorious and joys life. Those who are in him are victorious. They will enjoy life with him. They will not really die. A life-giving spirit. The resurrection of Christ, you see, opens up a whole new reality of existence, a whole new world, not another world, but this world renewed, a new existence, a new line of human beings, one no longer dominated by sin and death. The new world the resurrected Christ brings into being is one where death has been cast out. He removed not just the sting of death, he removed death itself. It will be no more. Life is ushered in by the last Adam, and that life will be wonderful. Everything life was meant to be with the first life. And then even more. This is the beauty of Easter. This is the glory of the resurrection. That's why we can, every Lord's Day is Easter Sunday, isn't it? You can preach on it every Sunday. This is the glory of the resurrection. You know, as I was working on this, I came across a saying. I've often puzzled. I tried to preach on it. I think I once did it at a funeral. The passage in verse 34 35. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's a puzzling sentence, a couple sentences. Commentaries go on and on and on about what this possibly might mean. But somebody captured it, and he said, he said, this is like when you got school kids, and your school kids are having a, say, a soccer tournament or whatever, a hockey tournament. Let's talk about hockey, right? They're having a tournament, and they win. 
what are those kids tempted to do? They're tempted to say to their opponents, nah, 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 nah. And you all tell your kids, don't do that. Don't ever do that. This is what Paul is doing in the face of death in the grave. The victory belongs to Christ, and he's allowed to gloat forever. Nah, 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 nah. The victory is his. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. As is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the human man, the man from heaven. Brothers and sisters, here you see what a complete Savior our Lord Jesus Christ is. The fall into sin has terrible, total consequences. Not just part of man, not just part of this world, but the whole man. As Paul says, the whole creation has been groaning in as the pains of childbirth right to this present time. Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. But herein lies the greatness of our Savior. He redeems and renews not just a part of us, not just our souls as the Greeks would like to be, or just our spirits or something like that. No, all of us and all of creation. He's a total renewer, redeemer, complete Savior. He rose. The resurrection of Christ is the beginning of that new and final world order. Hear and believe the word. I tell you a mystery. The trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting. Thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.